Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 238 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Neil Tyra about his podcast, The Law Entrepreneur, and his estate planning practice. Today's podcast is brought to you by iProtech, Text Expander, Ruby Receptionists, and Podium. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Regular listeners of the podcast will know we love talking about business books and frequently are talking about our favorite books for lawyers to read to learn how to better manage their practices. And for much of the last 10 years, we've been getting questions around what books we recommend or why there aren't better books around the future of law practice. And we are beyond excited to announce that next month we will be publishing Lawyerist's first book, The Small Firm Roadmap, which is meant to be the industry answer to where our small firms headed and how can you build one of those future-oriented practices. Yeah, we think it's time for a new roadmap to the way lawyers think about building solo and small firms. And so we wrote it and you can pre-order it now. We'll have a link in the show notes and it comes out on September 10th when you can buy the paperback as well. Our team has spent much of the last year putting our blood, sweat and tears into making the best book we possibly could. And we are really excited to have it out in the world in the next couple of weeks. If you read it and you like it, please leave a review on Amazon. It'll really help the book get out there, which is, after all, the whole reason we put it out there. We think we need a new model and we wrote about it and we hope you like it. So on September 10th, check it out. Let us know what you think. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Derek Miller from iProtech, and then we'll have my conversation with Neil. My name is Derek Miller. I'm the Vice President of Desktop Solutions for iProtech, and we create software that takes you from discovery through trial. Hey, Derek, thanks for being with us today. So your software helps firms manage e-discovery, and maybe we should start with why do small firms need to care about e-discovery? Small firms need to care about e-discovery because they get a variety of different information, and they need to know what they're getting and then how they're going to deal with it. Uh, I have a firm that I work with here in Phoenix. It's a small firm. They have two attorneys and two paralegals, and they have decided to start using technology from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So from the time that the client's first meeting happens, they start a chronology and then they start working on what they're going to produce and what they're getting from the opposing counsel. And they start with electronically produced images and electronically produced information. And somebody has to process that and work with it. And so they use our desktop software product to put that information in, review it, and then produce it. They also manage their transcripts and synchronized video, and they build their case or the entirety of the case through the use of technology. And so at every stage of the litigation life cycle, they're reviewing, producing, scanning, coding data, and putting it into a product that will allow them to then take all of that information, transition it through the litigation life cycle, and then go into trial and present that information. Ironically, everybody has to prepare as though they're going to trial, whether they actually end up in trial or not is dependent on, you know, kind of the case and where things end up. But everybody has to prepare as if they're going to trial. And so they use a combination of tools to get them to that point. 
and allows them to know what it is they're dealing with. Since they're using technology at every stage, as they're creating their chronology and reviewing the information, all of that is now very familiar with them. And so their preparation is solid. They know what they have all the way through. Yeah, they don't have to start in pretrial. They don't even have to start in pre-discovery. Uh, they are ready to go from the beginning of the intake process. That sounds like a pretty powerful way to approach trial prep and litigation generally. I think so. I think as they have used the technology, they're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that at the start of a case or you know halfway through a case, they got to figure out and remember how to use the software. It's just a natural part of the practice. For sure. So how would a firm get started using technology like that? That's a great question. I think that the easiest thing to do is to first pick which software you want to use. So go out and evaluate a couple of different products, decide what it is that you're trying to do, and then how does that software fit it? In our particular product, since we take people from discovery all the way through trial, you're in one product. You're not using a couple of different products. And then secondarily to that, I would invest heavily in the training. That once you become familiar with the software, then make that a part of your workflow and a part of your case. Gotcha. To learn more about what small firms need to know about e-discovery technology, plus more about iProtech, you can visit a blog post at iProtech.com slash GameChanger. That's iProtech.com slash GameChanger, and you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for being with us today, Derek. Thanks again for having me. Well, hi, my name is Neil Tyra. I'm an estate planning attorney who practices just outside of Washington, D.C. on the Maryland side. And at the same time, I'm also a podcaster. I have a podcast called The Law Entrepreneur, and I do a, as good a job as I can balancing those two acts and wearing two hats at the same time. And I think in part, my ability to do so is as a result of the fact that law actually is my fourth career. Wait, what were the first three? <laughs> well, I cooked for a living. Mm -hmm. Initially, I cooked all over the city of Annapolis, if you're familiar with the area where the Naval Academy We is. didn't cover this, but I'm I'm from Northern Virginia, so absolutely. Uh, so you know Annapolis. Mm -hmm. And then I spent 20 plus years building hardware and software systems for the government, primarily for NASA mm -hmm. and for DOD, largely in the space program, but ultimately in air defense. And I left that because uh, they were looking for a scapegoat for a contract that didn't go well, and I figured it was going to be me. Mm. And uh, so I exited stage left after 20 years. But all along, all during that period of time, I was a practicing martial artist. And so when I left the IT world, I opened a commercial martial arts studio and taught hundreds, if not thousands of students, the Japanese art of Gojuru karate. Mm -hmm. And but all along, I'd always had an inkling and always thought that I wanted to be an attorney. And I had a couple of friends who went to law school later in life and got me to thinking, you know, if that's something I want to do, I need to start thinking about doing it now. Because I had two kids getting older getting ready to head off to college and I was going to have to beat them to the, you know, to the money <laughs> supply. <Right. laughs> and so I decided, well, let me see if I can at least get in. And I was lucky enough to be accepted at the Catholic University of America. And then I had to make a decision and I sold the martial arts studio and went into semi-retirement in that respect. 
and started law school full time. And I've been an attorney now for 15 years. Very cool. I did not realize that you had that awesome background. That's pretty cool. And a circuitous route. <laughs> it's really just a question of I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Sure. Yeah. Have you figured that out yet? Not quite, because I just added this podcasting thing a few years ago, too. So, <laughs> Well, tell us about that. So you're on, I think, episode 160-something now? Just about that. I recorded 175 today, so we've got gotcha. a few okay. in, the, uh, in the works. So yeah, I was always a podcast junkie, and I used to listen to a lot of podcasts, a couple of whom the guests have been guests on your show. One of yeah. them uh, was The uh, Art of Manliness with Jordan Harbinger. Mm -hmm. And I heard a guy on there who I know, and I started talking to him about his experience on the podcast. And I thought, you know, I, I think I want to do a podcast. And originally I thought I was going to – I always like to hear the, the stories of the veterans of the legal wars here in the county in which I practice, which is the city – is the county seat – and I thought I was going to do a podcast like capturing their memories and what it was like to to practice law in the, in the 60s and 70s. And, mm. and I figured that would last maybe three or four months. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd run out of uh, people to talk to. And right about that time, an uh, individual who I went to law school with made a terrible mistake and lost their license. And they did so, in my opinion, because nobody taught them how to run a business. And they made a couple of mistakes and it cost them. Mm -hmm. And I got to thinking about the question, how does law school prepare us to run a business? And it doesn't really. It may prepare you to how to practice law. But if your only opportunity, and for some folks that I graduated with it during the, um, the economic challenges that we had in the mid-2000s, uh, their only opportunity to recover and pay off the student loans was to open their own practice and hang mm -hmm. out their shingle. And for some of these folks, they didn't know how to write a check. Yeah, It's just not something they'd been taught. And I'd already made a bunch of mistakes owning my own business as a martial arts studio owner. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I figured I'd already knew the ropes. Little did I know there was a whole new set of mistakes to make, <laughs> right. which I uh, very cleverly uh, accommodated. But so I said, well, what happened if I do a, a podcast that addresses what they teach us about running a business in law school? And that's kind of how the genesis of it got started. And then the prospect of, of getting free advice along the way. Yeah kind of intrigued me because, as I said, I made a lot of mistakes. I, at the time, I was working with a couple of coaches that I had mixed results with in terms of growing my practice. And I thought, well, okay, if I do this podcast, I can pick the brains of the successful and accomplished attorneys and find out what they did right, what they did wrong, what they wish they might have done otherwise, and we'll start from there. So that's the bulk of our guests, our successful solo practitioners. Yeah. Uh, but then we added entrepreneurs, people who have a skill set or an idea with respect to entrepreneurship that lawyers and, and small solo practices might benefit from. So that's the second category. And then lastly, I have what I call gadget folks. Being a tech nerd that I am, mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to interview <laughs> people who had a product or a service that attorneys could use. For sure. And so that's the bulk of our guest base. Cool. And then your practice is family law and estate planning. And is that just you or do you have more people working with you? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a true solo, or as I like to say, I have a three-man firm, me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a reformed litigator. When I, uh, when I went to law school, 
I thought I was going to go to the state's attorney's office. I did all my internships and Rule 16 lawyering uh, for the state's attorney's office here in the county. But I had had just a crisis of confidence right at at the moment that I graduated and said, well, let me see if there's anything else out there that would appeal to me more. And I took a position with a small boutique practice in the District of Columbia doing personal injury law. And I did that for a while. And then my son at the time was a pretty accomplished soccer player played at a very high level. I knew he had a chance to start uh, on the varsity as a freshman and he was getting ready to go into high school. And I wanted to be able to see all of his games without having to ask anybody. So here's where, you know, I make (laughs) these decisions that sometimes work out, sometimes, you know, don't. I just said, "Ah, I'm quitting. I'm starting my own practice. (laughs) Awesome. And I figured, you know, I owned my own business. I'd made all those mistakes and, you know, how hard could it be? So I just walked out and started my own practice, and fortunately, it's got me, uh, you know, through the day. Very cool. So you said a few things in there I want to follow up on. Yeah. One is you mentioned coaches as just an aside. Do you still have a coach, and kind of what's the role that they've played for you? Now, actually, you know, I don't currently. And um, I keep going back and forth about whether or not that's something I want to pick back up again. Mm -hmm. I had mixed results. I had some great experiences and some great learning, some great growth. And then I had some stagnation. And so, you know, if it had been smoothed out a little bit more for me, I think I would have been more receptive to continuing. But went through those peaks and valleys, as, as I now understand we all do with coaching. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I, I'm not currently using a coach or a mentor, but I have a lot that come on the program. So yeah, I, get, sure. I get a lot of benefit there, but it's not, you know, directly hands-on and one-to-one. I mean, it's, I suppose it's one of those things where it's kind of like a personal trainer. Sometimes you're able to get to the gym and participate and be enthusiastic about it. And sometimes you're not. Correct. And I think the analogy is really apropos because, you know, some trainers have a different approach And it's not always a one size fits all Mm -hmm. methodology that works to help build your body nor your law practice. It has to be complementary, right? It does. It has to work for you. And, you know, I think there's a whole plethora of of coaches out there. There's There's a lot of them in the legal space. You know, I'd suggest to everybody that kind of sample around. You look around and find if there's something that resonates with you. You'll know it. Right. You know, if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Mm -hmm. But if it feels right and you're getting what you need, then I think coaching can be really, really valuable. Right. Yeah. Having somebody to help hold you accountable and and shape Uh, your growth. See, don't say that. You don't like accountability? No, that was the big problem for me. Oh, say more. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as a true solo, you can change the rules. Mm -hmm. And so that was the biggest problem for me. We'd set up a goal and then I would not be accountable to the schedule and the goal. So I know it was less the coach's problem than it was mine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the more you realize your own fallibility, that you are the cause of the problem, unless you fix it, it's just going to continue. So I had to work on that myself. Yeah. Interesting. And I'm still working on it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So I want to talk about something else, but we have to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we can just go off. So we'll take a few minutes off and when we come back, we're going to talk about that idea of what we should have learned in law school and what we think law schools ought to be teaching. So we'll be right back. Drip, drip, drip. Hear that? It's your office's online reviews. 
Kind of slow, huh? Not exactly the gush of praise you're hoping for when you set up your account on that review site. But why? After all, your best clients love you. They say it all the time, just not online. And that's too bad. Because your word may be your bond, but your client's words, well, they're your best sales tool. And these days, a star rating can make the difference between very interested and running for the hills. Podium knows how important reviews are to your law office. That's why they built a great online review platform, making it simpler than ever to get a five-star rating you know you deserve. Businesses see an average 6% increase in revenue from reviews thanks to Podium. More than just a friendly reminder, Podium sends clients straight to the review sites you care about most with built-in analytics to monitor your progress towards meeting your next goal. So you could keep waiting for reviews to drip in, or you could open the floodgates with Podium. Just visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you sign up. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Podium, become the number one law office online. Unlock your productivity with Text Expander. Easily insert text snippets in any application from a library of content created by you and your team while reducing errors. You can save so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about TextExpander. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. So Neil, we're back. And uh, before we left, we'd been talking about your podcast. We've been talking about coaching. And I wanted to follow up on something else you mentioned, which is, you know, one of the reasons you started your podcast was realizing all of the skills we didn't learn in law school. And I've been talking a bit recently about, you know, lots of people object to the idea that law practice is a business. It's a profession, right? It's not a business, which I find asinine, but it's out there. <laughs> and, yeah. and one of the things that often gets thrown out there is it's a profession. We're bound by a rule of ethics. But one of the things I've noticed about those rules of ethics, which I'm bound by as well as a lawyer, is that most of them don't have anything to do with your competence to practice law and solve legal problems, right? Like the most common ethics violations are around balancing trust accounts and client communication and billing and things like that. And those are all business skills that nobody taught you how to do in law school. And so I'm wondering if you're getting at things like that and what else, what else is encompassed in the term entrepreneur that you chose for your podcast that you wish lawyers were getting more of in law school? Well, that's a hundred percent correct. I find it infuriating that the ethical restrictions that are placed on attorneys, as you said, aren't really geared around their proficiency or their worthiness to practice the profession, but rather to run a business. Mm -hmm. And so the, the quickest way, and, and ironically, I was just, the episode that I was recording this morning was with another guest that you've had on, uh, Megan uh, Zavarea. And we talked about, you know, how attorneys get themselves in trouble mm -hmm. as business owners, things like not being able to properly manage the escrow account or not adhering to the ethical limitations for uh, advertising and, 
and the like. And it's it's a paradox that attorneys as business owners, and let's make no mistake, if you are a solo practitioner or a small firm practitioner and you own the firm, you are a business owner. And frankly, you're a business owner first and an attorney second, because if you can't solve the problems of running a business first, you'll never get the opportunity to be the attorney. Mm -hmm. You know, if you run out of money and you can't keep the doors open, you can't you're not going to be able to practice law, at least under that, you know, that name, that shingle. I mean, there's at least three legs to the stool, right? You've got to be a professional. You've got to be a lawyer and serve your clients. You've got to run a business. And you have to manage, you have to do the fine, you got to do all the administrative stuff as well. So, yeah. And so the, the angst that people have when they come on my show is how do I balance those three things? Mm-hmm. And particularly when I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I, nobody taught me how to negotiate a lease for office space. Now, I suggest that the first question you should ask, really, if you're going into, into <laughs> solo practice, is do you need office space? Right. Question everything. You know, I, when I talk about one of the mistakes that I made, that's one of the mistakes that I made because I just thought in my brain that I needed physical office space to practice law. And, you know, I didn't. And so there was a lot of money. I won't say that it was wasted, but it was spent where it could have been spent elsewhere on a physical space to practice out of. So questions like that, but nobody taught me how to negotiate a lease. And my first lease was horrible for me. (laughs) Yeah, but fortunately, I had enough money to overcome that. And then nobody taught us how to attract clients, how to market our business. How do you generate new business? But we're professionals. We're not supposed to worry about that stuff. But if, but if you don't have clients <laughs> coming in the door, you're not going to have a profession. Yeah, no, and I it's agree. a catch twenty two problem. Nobody taught us how to staff an office and how to hire and how to do reviews and how to pay employee taxes. You know. None of that was taught in law school. I mean, when you, you know, every year Thomson Reuters does a survey on the state of small law firms where it goes and asks small firm owners and leaders, what are your challenges? And their challenges are getting clients, getting paid and getting things done, not how do I figure out, you know, the rule against perpetuities? That's that we figured out. Those aren't the problems and the major challenges law firms are having. 100% true. And uh, I hear it every time somebody comes on the show it's one of those three things. Mm-hmm. So when you, if you had a chance to go and run your own law school, would you be doing like general accounting classes and, you know, basic landlord tenant for business classes? Or how would you go about designing a curriculum that is modified for the realities of running a law firm? Well, I think it is borderline legal malpractice on the part of the law schools, not offer a, an entire track through all three years on how to operate and, op- and and sustain a law practice. I think you should be able to take classes in law firm operations and law firm business development right alongside constitutional law as a mm-hmm. 1L hmm. all the way through. Because there are some folks who know or who have a good sense that I want to practice on my own when I get out of law school. And so I'm going to study the substantive law and professional ethics and rules of evidence and all of that. But alongside it, I want to know, you know, law firm accounting. I want to know staffing issues, how to how to hire people, what to look out for. I want to know how to negotiate, as we said, a lease, if that's what I need. Right. <laughs> Whatever's right for you. <laughs> I want to know how to use technology. And that's another problem. Mm-hmm. 
You know, for an uh, individual to prosper, I think in this day and age, you have to leverage technology to your benefit. Mm-hmm. And there's so much capability left on the table because these folks are first trying to learn the law and then trying to figure out their way how to operate a law firm. They don't have the time to devote how to use technology to do all of the above. Right. And so a geek like me had a tremendous advantage because I knew how to use some of the tools. And now you're starting to see a little more of that, I think, particularly with the younger law students that are graduating. They have a firmer grasp on the use of technology, and they're a little more entrepreneurial in in the sense that they're willing to try stuff than maybe – you know, the attorneys that graduated with me or before me. Yeah, that's probably true. We could fix law schools all day, I suppose. Mm. Um, <laughs> but we should drag ourselves out of this rabbit hole. <laughs> I tell you I tell you what, what, what does annoy me, though, mm-hmm. is when they offer a one-credit program, you know, as a third-year student. Right. And think, right. okay, look, we handled it. Yeah. <laughs> One-ninetieth of your law school education is going to handle a third of your practice. Or, exactly. Or more. Yeah. So when you look back over your own law practice, you've teed yourself up by this by saying you started a podcast in order to talk about your mistakes. So give me give me one of your top mistakes. Like what is one of the biggest mistakes that you made that you think other people could benefit from knowing about so that they could avoid it? I jumped in way too quickly with a nationally known and recognized provider of legal services who offered to do my website for me. Fine law. (laughs) Yep. Um, And I did so because one of my good friends, who's very successful, had her uh, website um, developed in that fashion, and I liked it. What I didn't realize was that mine was going to look exactly like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of money wasted in that uh, in that area and a lot of time. So that was one of my bigger mistakes. You know, that, that really, to me, is a great example of one of the things that I also struggled with when I was starting my own firm is we have a tendency to ask other lawyers for advice without taking the time to understand the context for it. And and like at that point in your practice, you probably weren't able to understand the context either, just as I wasn't, you know, like right. I picked up time matters early on. And, and if I hadn't hated it so much, there wouldn't be a lawyerist. So I guess, you know, yeah. that's a thing, but I did that on the advice of other lawyers and I didn't know better than whether or not I should trust them. And so I just took their advice because, Hey, more experienced lawyers. Cause we have this thing about experience which is kind of not all that helpful. Like I would have needed to know that somebody was sophisticated about law practice management in order to know that their advice was worth taking. But all lawyers really want to know is, is this person more experienced than me and are they successful and what do they think? And that's always the struggle when it comes to software or marketing strategies or anything is like, I'm not sure that we're very good at taking the time to figure out whether or not we should, somebody else's advice is worthwhile. And it sounds like you kind of fell into that trap too. For sure. And and the thing that irritates me about my own actions is that, again, I'm a techie. I'd spent 20 years in hardware and software systems. I could have done my own website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could have done my own <laughs> website better and, and, and more efficiently. And But I thought, you know what? 
I'm not going to be so presumptuous to think that that's the case. This website looks great, and you know it was a disaster. So that was an eye opener. And the other thing is, you know, sometimes you have to hit me over the head multiple times for the lesson to sink in. Oh, you too. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> One of the things I like about the practice of law is that if you're in a practice area that you don't like, or for whatever reason you want to change, you can do so. It's really pretty simple. You just get yourself up to speed and start rededicating yourself to a different practice area. Had I thought about it more when I started, I wouldn't have gone into litigation. Mm. I would have gone into exactly what I'm in doing now, estate planning, because I'm not, I don't consider myself old, but I'm older. <laughs> when you get to this part of your life, you don't want to be tied down by the court schedule. At least mm -hmm. I didn't. And, I, and had I thought that through a little bit, it would have been self-evident to me. And I could have started as an estate planning attorney a long time ago and been a lot more effective, I think, at that. So that, that was another, I wouldn't say it was a mistake, but it was a, a bit of a waste. That's a really good observation that I've had as well is like litigation means a whole lot of externally imposed deadlines that you right. can't do much to move and that mean you go to jail if you miss them. Or lose your license, right. <laughs> right. Like it is really hard. Like somebody else is dictating your moves constantly and, you know, you cancel vacations, you miss kids games, whatever, because a judge thinks you need to have a trial or a hearing the next day. So indeed. Yeah, indeed. So those are a couple of the big ones. There's a whole plethora oh, of I smaller well, ones. That's people can just go listen to your podcast and get more. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should say too, like, I don't think find law is bad. There is a firm that find law is a good fit for. I think one of the mistakes they've made is marketing themselves to a lot of firms that they're a poor fit for. And then people get angry about it somewhat rightly because it's a bad fit. So that disclaimer out of the way. I imagine in doing your podcast, you've come up with a lot of things that you've been able to bring back to your practice. Can you think of one of the top things that you've taken away from your podcast that has gone back into your practice and benefited your practice? Yeah, I can. You know, when I first started, because I was a techie, I knew that I had the resources to connect to my hardware and software systems at the time from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was before the cloud. So it was a little more complicated than it is now. But I wanted to be able to run my practice from my laptop from wherever I was. And lar largely, I was able to do that. What? Because now I'm going to geek out for a minute. What, what did you use? I'm an Apple fanboy, an unabashed yeah. Apple fanboy. So when I started... I knew I wanted to stay Apple, and there weren't a lot of hardly any practice management software uh, platforms available at the time. Uh, Daylight by Market Circle was more of a customer relations management platform that I could realize I could use to run my practice. And so I chose that. Clio and Rocket Matter were two emerging stars that were just getting started, and I didn't think they were mature enough. At the time, again, and I know then what I know now, I might have made a, di a, a different choice. But uh, Daylight is great for me, and I've stayed with it. They were a very fine sponsor of my podcast for almost the entire length of time yeah, that cool. I've been doing. So we we're not uh, sponsorship relationship anymore. But I still sing the praises of Daylight by Market Circle because I still use it. Nice. My system was even more janky. I, I was using Linux Ubuntu at the time, Ubuntu Linux Oops. at the time, and uh, and Dropbox hadn't been released yet. Right. So I was syncing up my files manually using rsync over 
static IP addresses from home and work. <laughs> you my, were literally rolling your own. I was rolling my own big time, and it worked fantastically yeah. well. But it was it was pretty janky by comparison to the easy way people have it now. So, <laughs> but one of the things I brought back out of the podcast that I never uh, never thought about. It. So the technology part I was kind of up to speed on, and I've been improving little pieces of it uh, mm -hmm. back and forth. But we had Ryan Levesque who wrote a book called um, Why. Mm. And basically, the, the premise of the book is to talk about getting the answers to questions before you implement a solution, which seems to be self-evident. But yeah. I oftentimes embark on a solution and then find that it doesn't exactly fit what I thought the problem was. But my estate planning practice is geared primarily to younger clients. And I wasn't getting the kind of conversion that I wanted. And so I started a survey and I asked these clients, you know, what what is the hang up? What is the challenge that you have about getting started with an estate plan? And I thought it would be things like, well, I don't think I have enough assets to make it worth my while or I don't want to think about death or, you know, this kind of standard things. The answer that I got back and the one that completely floored me was, we don't have the time to come to your office. Mm, mm -hmm. I said, oh, wow. Because, yeah, well, I got to take time off from work or, or the, the spouse has to take time off from work. or I got a kid and got this going on. And, well, how about if, if I come to you? Nah, then I got to clean the house. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> I got to put the food away. All right. Well, how about if we, if we were able to do this online? The uh, tools that we use now, Skype or FaceTime or Zoom, video conferencing and an exchange of questionnaires and material back and forth and scanned documents, would that be helpful to you? That would be enormously helpful. Yeah. So my practice is really kind of now gearing around to almost, I wouldn't say exclusively, but the vast majority of my clients I service online. I feel like lawyers don't give enough respect to that viewpoint, which is a very true thing. Like I'm looking at hiring a landscaper and I filled out two contact forms on two different landscape companies' websites, both of which came personally recommended. And I asked both of them to respond by email or text. And one did and one left me a voicemail. And the one that left me a voicemail, I don't intend to do business with. Yeah. A, because they didn't respect my choice. But B, because like, I just don't have time for phone calls. <laughs> right. And so screw them. Like I, I need somebody who's willing to work with me in the way that I'm able to work. And it makes all the difference in the world. But I also don't think most enough lawyers do exactly what you said, which is just ask. Like your clients have the answers that you think you have. And you may be surprised by them. It's so valuable. So Yeah, I'm chasing all different kinds of theories as to why these young millennials aren't setting up estate plans while, while they can right now. Mm -hmm. And it, it really came down to, gee, just driving to your office, having to take time off from work or meet you at a coffee shop or whatever. That is a problem for me because I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. And it's so often a simple thing like that, too, where, I mean, it's simple and not, but it's the unexpected thing that you can absolutely solve that problem with a couple of simple tools. That is so often the case where, like, you know, I'll start revving up some big solution for our website or our, our community platform or something in order to fix a problem where people aren't engaging or something. And it turns out that it's actually just I needed to flip a switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or uh, I, we didn't see it. It was on the wrong side of the mm -hmm. screen. You know, if you move it right. over to the left, oh, there it is. 
you know, that kind of thing. So, and I would never have thought of even asking the question had it not been the lesson I learned from my podcast. Yeah, that's really smart. So Neil, since I have you here, I haven't, I don't think had too many podcasts with tech oriented, future oriented estate planning lawyers. But as you know, we love to talk about the future of law practice yeah. and that like one of the most common tropes, I'll say, in talking about the future of law practice is how estate planning is mostly going to get taken over by intelligent forms and AI lawyers. And so I'm curious what you think about that. What are the future prospects of your chosen practice area? Well, I think overcoming that belief is the major challenge that estate planning attorneys have. Because, I mean, let's face it, companies like LegalZoom are spending a fortune marketing mm -hmm. via all kinds of platforms and channels to get the message across that you can use them to get your simple will and estate plan done. And I'm not suggesting that that's not viable. It's not the best solution. Yep. And so overcoming that is a challenge. And I think if, you, if you're not able to address that question head on and directly as to why a potential client ought to use you as opposed to this online uh, opportunity or a dozen like it, if you're not able to address that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to not turn out well. And so a lot of people say, well, the way to address that is to lower my price and race to the bottom. Mm and compete with those platforms on a cost basis. I don't think you can do that. You have to provide value to your client base as an estate planner, and they have to actually really feel like they have a relationship with you and that you understand what their personal issues are. Because let's face it, when you do an estate plan, you're talking about almost the most intimate aspects of your family and your, your own personal life. Other than you know divorce and custody, which I did do, really hard-pressed to find you know, an aspect of personal relationships more uh, intense than what happens when I pass and what happens to my family when I pass. And I suggest that the robots <laughs> and the AI enhanced platforms that seek to address that issue can't come near enough close to understanding that relationship to make it worth their while. How do you get a chance to make that case to your potential client when LegalZoom can outspend your marketing budget probably a thousand times over? Well, for me personally, it's just that, being personal. Mm. Like if you go to my website, I have this wonderful video that we did that doesn't really talk about me as an attorney. You see me walking with my wife and you see my house and, you know, my friends. And, you know, I try to establish an opportunity for a potential client to have a visceral connection with me before we ever talk about anything with respect to their estate plan. And most people come to me and say, well, I love that video. I feel like I know you. Or I've listened to your podcast. I feel like I understand who you are. Or I've watched your other videos. And uh, you speak to what concerns me. And that's how I think you differentiate yourself from a commercial, you know, a 30-second commercial that talks about the value of a company like LegalZoom, which, again, you know, I'm going to say can be the right thing for some people. Mm-hmm. Neil Tyra, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. Listeners, if you'd like to catch up with Neil, 
You can go to thelawentrepreneur.com to find all of 170 as I'm recording this episodes of the podcast. I'm sure there'll be a couple more out by the time this goes live. And uh, we'll obviously include the links in the show notes. So, Neil, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Sam, it has been a pleasure of mine and just you know, one of the highlights of my week to say that I was on the Lawyerist podcast. So I'm a avid listener to your podcast, and I, and I say that with all honesty. Uh, you guys do a great job. Your, your blog is fantastic. I read it all the time, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have taken the time to be with you today, and I do appreciate it. Oh, you got me blushing now. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,